Please take your Bibles and I'm going to read that entire chapter of Romans chapter 12. Read the first two verses, but I would like to read the whole chapter. Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. God bless 
the reading of his holy, inspired, and authoritative word. In the passage before us today, in 1 John, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, is where we are as we continue to work through the epistle of 1 John. Here we find the Apostle John addressing the subject of worldliness and how to avoid worldliness. Now, worldliness, just the name, most likely will conjure up different pictures to different people. From having a glass of wine to wearing makeup is worldliness to some professing Christians. To others, worldliness is enjoying the use of any modern convenience. Still to others, worldliness is only achieved when one finally dives headfirst into the lifestyle of the world and, for example, becomes caught up in the drunken parties and the immorality of the world. However, dear ones, worldliness, according to the Apostle John, is essentially loving the thoughts, words, and deeds of the world. Warming up to and getting cozy with the ideas and the so-called wisdom of this world which God calls foolishness. The worldliness certainly does extend to our speech and to our behavior. John's emphasis in this epistle is not primarily upon either speech or behavior. John's emphasis is upon thoughts and attitudes, and affections, and the desires of Christians. That's what John calls loving, being affectionate with the world. You see, dear ones, it is not only the one who has dived into the behavior of the world that is worldly. It is also the one who lovingly embraces the thoughts and the ideas of this world. For the Lord our God declares, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Worldliness is simply thinking with fondness and with approval your own thoughts and ideas about God, about the world about the family, about the church, about the civil government or anything else, thinking your own thoughts about those things rather than thinking the thoughts of God about those things. That's worldliness. And it begins in the mind of man long before it exhibits and shows itself in our speech and in our behavior. You see, dear ones, God does not want you to be an original thinker, originating your own new and novel or creative 
I appreciated what Elder Barrow said today as he was catechizing the children. We cannot legitimately use that term as human beings, creative, creative thinking, creative writing. Only God creates. God creates out of nothing. That is creation. We are to be derivative thinkers, not original thinkers. We are to derive our thoughts from God and what His Word has to say. Simply to illustrate the point, it's amazing today how much worldly psychology has permeated preaching, teaching, and counseling. Worldly psychology, the wisdom of this world, is filled in, from pulpit to pulpit on the Lord's Day. One will hear the secular notions and ideas coming through the sermons that many ministers will proclaim. Or in those counseling sessions, they will appear to the pagans or appeal to the pagans for advice for counsel rather than to the Word of God. How many times have I read or heard, you can't love God and others until you learn to love yourself and forgive yourself. That's heretical, dear ones. That is heretical. God did not give three commands. He gave one command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second command He gave was to love your neighbor. He didn't give a third command, love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself, is what God said. You see, that which God has created us with, we have a natural preservation and love for ourselves to feed ourselves, to clothe ourselves. And that is the kind of love that God calls us to extend to others when they're hungry, when they're needy as well. The Scripture rather teaches that we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We're not to think more highly of ourselves than others. We are rather to crucify ourselves. You see, this is worldly thinking that has crept into the church. And we are never to forgive ourselves. The Scripture never teaches that we are to forgive ourselves. It is God who forgives and we are to believe that God has forgiven us. And on the basis of His Word, we believe and rest and trust. And that brings peace and confidence into our lives. Or the worldly thinking that says that alcoholism is a disease. Dear ones, the Scripture teaches that drunkenness is a sin, not a disease. There are so many who say today that alcoholism is an incurable disease, in fact. Well, my Bible tells me that there were people in the church of Corinth that at one time were drunkards, but they were not drunkards any longer because of the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ 
They were saved. They were justified. They were redeemed. You see, all hope, dear ones, is removed in the life of one who thinks that he has an incurable disease. But when he recognizes it as sin, there is hope because he can repent and turn from that sin and find help. Or the worldly thinking that says that you are a victim. Nowhere in the Scripture do I ever find the fact that God says that you are a victim. Regardless of what you have to go through, regardless of the tribulation or the persecution, even in the midst of that, Romans 8 says, you are more than conquerors through Christ who loves you. Not victims. You take away hope from those who are victims. You produce self-pity. Feeling sorry for oneself. We don't need to feel sorry for ourselves. We need to trust the Word of God that we are overcomers through Christ. Well, having defined, beloved, what worldliness is, very quickly, what does God want you to do about worldliness? Well, God calls you as people to stop loving the world to separate yourselves from the world in the way that you think, speak, and act. In fact, the Apostle John declares that you can't love the world and love the Father at the same time. James even echoes the same truth in his epistle when he shakes Christians to their very foundation by saying, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, there is no neutrality. There is no neutrality. If you become a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. If you would be the friend of God, you must be, in that sense, the enemy of the world. Let's be honest, brethren. We have all been infected with worldliness to varying degrees. But John's point is simply that you must treat that worldliness like a cancerous disease. Rather than loving it, rather than flirting with it, or thinking well of it, you must, by God's grace, hate it and seek to root it out of your life wherever you find it. Don't be content with it. Don't become complacent with it. Don't become satisfied with where you are. Whatever worldliness you see in your thinking, root it out. Love not the world, nor the things in the world. Consider what God commands in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 9 through 11, as an example of the separation that God calls us to. This is an illustration. Deuteronomy 22, verses 9 through 11. You may wonder, why in the world are you reading this passage So it pertains to separation. Well, let's read it and then we'll make some comments. 
God says, you shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen, mixed together. In this passage, God forbids his people, the Old Covenant, to sow their fields with different kinds of seed, to plow their fields with an ox and a donkey yoked together, and to wear a garment that is mixed with different kinds of fabric. Why? Why does God forbid that? Is God stating that it is morally evil to do so, that it is inherently wicked to do those things? To sow different seeds in a field, to yoke together an ox and a donkey, or to have different types of fabric in a garment? Of course not. That's not the point, that it is morally, intrinsically evil. The lesson to be learned by God's people was that they were to be wholly separate unto the Lord God. They were not to think according to the ways of the world. They were not to think their thoughts after them. Even if all the nations around them sowed their fields with different seed, yoked an ox and a donkey together, and made garments of two different kinds of fabric, God's people were to be guided not by their own wisdom, not by the wisdom of the nations, but by the wisdom and knowledge of God alone. You see, that was an object lesson to them to say, you're not to depend upon anyone else but me for your wisdom and knowledge and thinking. Whether you understand it or not, follow me. Be separate from the world. And I'm showing you that you are a people that are separate by giving you these commands to follow and obey me. The scripture, dear ones, is filled with, with passages not to lean on your own understanding, not to be wise in your own eyes, but rather to trust in the Lord with all of your heart to cling to God's thoughts and God's ways, which are infinitely higher than your thoughts and your ways. Not to be led by your feelings. Oh, how we are led by our feelings today. How we are encouraged to be led by our feelings. Unless we are led by our feelings, or unless we express our feelings in some way, we're too macho. I'm not opposed to men crying or weeping, but to be led by our feelings is completely contrary to the Word of God. We are to be led by a mind that is submitted to the Word of God and to the Spirit of God, not by our feelings. And that's the kind of biblical separation that God calls you to, beloved. Separation from the world beginning here. Biblical separation, dear ones, is not hiding yourself from the world. 
in some cave or monastery or commune. That's not biblical separation. You are to be in the world, but not of the world. It is refusing to love the thoughts and the speech and the behavior of this world. That's biblical separation. And as we look at the text that's before us today in 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, turn with me there if you will. Let us get our contextual bearings very quickly. We're presently, as we look, as we're looking through the epistle of John, we're presently considering three objective tests that the apostle John gives to believers in order to assure your hearts that you do indeed know the living God. These are tests to provide assurance of faith and salvation. Whereas the Gnostic false teachers, whom John was writing against, said, They knew God through their mystical experiences. John has argued in chapter 1 that one can only know God through the Jesus Christ who revealed Himself in history and revealed Himself in the inspired teaching and writing of the apostles. You see, assurance for the Gnostics. Gnostics comes from the word gnosis in Greek, which means knowledge. These were people who said we can obtain special knowledge through our mystical experiences with God. Knowledge that's not in the Word of God. Knowledge that no one else has that God specially gives to us. Assurance for these Gnostics was based upon the special knowledge they said that they received through their subjective experiences. However, John turns believers away from evaluating their faith on the basis of mere experience or upon feelings. He turns them away. That is not where you look to if you are to be assured of your salvation, not to your feelings or your experience. Rather, John proclaims, you know that you know God, number one, if you keep His commandments. You know that you know God, number two, if you love the brethren. You know if you you know you love God, I'm sorry, you know that you know God if you believe the truth, thirdly. Now we've considered in past sermons the first two tests in verses three through eleven and have not yet quite arrived at the third test, that of belief of the truth in verses eighteen through twenty seven in this chapter. The passage that we are considering today in verses 12 through 17 is actually a bridge which unites the second test and the third test together. Dear ones, before I proceed, let me make it very clear to you that it is not on the basis of any of these tests, however, that you are justified before God. It is not on the basis of these tests that you are declared righteous before God. You are declared righteous before God on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone. Nothing at all added to that nor subtracted from that. 
God will not accept my obedience, my love, or my faith as a sufficient price for my salvation. For all my works of righteousness are as filthy rags before a holy God. Let us be absolutely clear then, dear ones, that these tests are not a means by which to become justified and declared righteous before God, but rather, these particular tests are a means by which to assure your heart that you are indeed justified before God. They are the supernatural fruit that flow from your justification from your regeneration. This particular passage that we are considering today, verses 12 through 17, in this passage, John speaks of something that will hinder his dear children in the faith from keeping God's commandments, from loving the brethren, and from believing the truth. What is it that will keep God's people from those three things? Worldliness. Worldliness. And so John addresses this problem of worldliness by teaching believers how to avoid it. And so first, how to avoid it. How to avoid worldliness. First, in verses 12 through 14... John positively gives to Christians this particular word, that Christians are to turn their thoughts and desires to the household of God, to the family of God. That's the first way in which you avoid worldliness. Not separating yourself from the family of God. Seeing the family of God as essential, as a necessary part of your Christian life the church of Jesus Christ. And the second way that you are to avoid and can avoid worldliness is stated negatively. You are to turn your thoughts and desires away from the world. Verses 15 through 17. Turn your thoughts and desires to the household of God. Turn your thoughts and desires away from the world. Put off the thinking that characterizes the world and put on the thinking that characterizes the family of God. That's how you avoid worldliness. So let's look, first of all, then, that first point. Turn your thoughts and desires to the family of God, stated in verses 12 through 14. Verse 12 reads, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. From that particular passage that has just been read, I have you note two things. The first thing is that John's attitude of the church 
of Jesus Christ is that the church is a family consisting of little children, fathers, and young men. Now, is John speaking of those who are little children, fathers, and young men in terms of quantity, that is, their age or years that they've obtained? Or is he thinking or speaking in terms of quality, that their children, uh, fathers, and young men in maturity? Well, I don't know for sure. I don't know that anyone uh, is absolutely sure at that particular point. Commentators are certainly divided. But I submit to you that regardless of which view one takes, John is drawing attention to the fact that the church is a family with various ages and or levels of maturity within the body of Christ. And so it is important that we see the church in terms of a family in which you can be nourished protected and taught by fathers and in which you can nourish and protect and teach little children and young men. That's the church of Jesus Christ. Because the Gnostics erred in understanding the soul as enslaved inside this evil body of flesh and blood. Remember, They had this particular view that the body, anything of matter, is evil and wicked and that which is spirit is good. And so it was the the goal of the Gnostic to escape the body because the body was wicked and evil. Well, this heresy of the Gnostics affected every area of their theology. Ideas have consequences. The visible church for the Gnostic was like this body of flesh and blood which they believed enslaved the free spirit of an enlightened man. As the body was the enemy of the soul, so the visible church was the enemy of the spiritual man. Gnostics had no place in their lives for authority structures in the church. No place for creeds and confessions. No place for the sacraments, because all these things are externals. What's really important is the Spirit. These things enslave and entrap, they said. In fact, St. Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, who was martyred in 110 A.D., charged the Gnostics with this very sin. Quote, he said... They stay away from the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. They stay away from the Eucharist and prayer. In other words, they don't come to worship. This was the teaching as well of many, most of the Anabaptists during the time of the Reformation. That it is that which is internal only that is good that all these other things that are external, confessions, creeds, uh, authority, uh, structures in the church, the sacraments, those can all be disposed of, dispensed with. It's as well prevalent amongst professing Christians today. No creed, no membership, No church government, no church discipline, because I will not be bound by such institutions. I'm free. 
of all of these things. You see, that was the opposite of the teaching of the apostles. That was not in conformity with the teaching. That was following the teaching of the Gnostics. Dear fathers, young men and little children, even as John addressed the church, so I address you. The family is not an expendable institution in God's economy and neither is the church. It is in the womb of the family that we learn to walk and talk and think and likewise in the church. It is in the family that we are lovingly corrected and disciplined when we err and so in the church. It is in the family that we are taught to love one another just as in the church. It is in the family that we learn how to worship the living God. Even so, in the church. It is in the family where the most basic covenant commitments are expressed, and so it is true in the church. And for this reason, dear ones, when worldliness would creep into your life, and it will, it does, daily, When worldliness creeps into your life, it is in the family of God where you will find help and strength and courage to persevere in the faith. Oh, how the devil loves to lead someone who's being tempted with worldliness from the church, from the family of God, to isolate them, to attack them, to divide and conquer. You see, that is the scheme and the plan the enemy has used for centuries and it still works today. Lead them away from those who truly love them and care for them so they're isolated and by themselves and then attack them. It's been a great privilege that God has given to my wife and me a ministry I think for many years to open our home to singles. Single young men, single young ladies who are away from home or who do not have Christian homes to be able to show them what a Christian family looks like. How Christians love one another within a family context. To show them that a Christian family laughs together, worships together. There's correction in, the, in a Christian family. There's discipline. There's repentance. There's the seeking of forgiveness. There's prayer. Dear ones, when this is the view that one has of a family... That one's heart will ache to be separated from that family. You cannot, rem- you cannot move from such a family without great pain and heartache. For those things are exemplified. The Gnostic false teachers and their blind followers had left the family of God to walk in their worldliness. And in so doing, they demonstrated that they were never a part 
in the first place of the family of God. Notice what John says in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Dear ones, what a joy it is to visit our brethren in Prince George. And many of you have had the opportunity to visit the brothers and sisters in Prince George and to see how they open up their hearts and their homes because we're a family. And for them to come to Edmonton and for us to open our hearts and our homes to them. For our dear friends from Calgary who join us and from other parts of Canada to know that we are a family. We are united and joined together. What a blessing indeed it is. Something that Christians alone know and comprehend. I'm reminded of the words of the Lord Jesus himself in regard to this when he said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 48, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. A closer bond and union you will not find in the world than in covenant union with Jesus Christ and with those who are united to Jesus Christ. The family of God. But there's one other point I'd like to make very quickly before we move on to the second major point. Also note that it is in this family of God where you will find forgiven sinners who know the eternal God who alone is able to give victory over the wicked one. Dear ones, this is not a society of perfected saints. This is a society of forgiven sinners saved by the redeeming love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Growing. Growing. Ever growing, God willing, in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, but still sinners in need of our help and fellowship and encouragement and correction. And that's why we find in 1 John chapter 2 these various characteristics of different members of the, fa- of the family of God. Little children, your sins are forgiven. Fathers, you've known him who is from the beginning. Young men, you've overcome the wicked one. Because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Let me simply say before we move on that I pray that none of you who are a part of this congregation ever come to the conclusion that as long as you are striving against those worldly thoughts, as long as you continue to say, I hate them, I don't want them in my life, to never think that you are a failure. 
that as long as you continue to wrestle and strive, this is a congregation where you will be welcomed, where you, where you will be nurtured and cared for. Because we are little children and young men and fathers. And we need one another. You know, Peter denied the Lord three times. But where was he found the night of Christ's resurrection, but in the company of God's people, the saints? The Lord appeared to the disciples, and there was Peter, because he needed that encouragement of the family of God. And you need it as well, and I need it. Proverbs 24:16 says, "For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity and never rise again." Keep getting back up. You have a family. We love you. We care for you. The second main point that John addresses, not only are you to turn to the family of God to avoid worldliness, you are to turn your thoughts and your desires away from the world. Notice what he says in verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Three points that I'd like to make in this passage that I've just read. There's a command in verse 15. We find the origin of of these vain thoughts in verse 16, and then finally in verse 17, we find the standard that a Christian is to follow, the command in verse 15. What exactly is John commanding believers not to love the world? Love not the world. What is the world? Well, let me give you four things, first of all, that it's not, and then I'll give you the one thing that it is. Love not the world does not mean you are not to love your brother in Christ. It teaches that in 1 John 2.10. Uh, 2, love not the world does not mean you are not to love your wife. Ephesians 5.25. Love not the world doesn't even mean you are not to love your enemy. Matthew 5.44. And we read from Romans chapter 12. In fact, you are to love your enemy by praying for him, Jesus says, by feeding him if he's hungry or clothing him if he's naked, according to Paul in Romans chapter 12. That's how you're to demonstrate love to your enemy. Second, love does love not the world does not mean you cannot enjoy the material blessings of this world. We find in 1 Timothy 6.17 that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Thirdly, 
Love not the world does not mean you are to have nothing to do with this temporal world because it's quickly sinking into the sand. God's kingdom, dear ones, is actually like, Jesus says, like leaven, which will completely fill this world before Christ returns in Matthew 13.33. God's kingdom is like a stone that becomes an enormous mountain that will fill the whole earth in Daniel 2.34. The knowledge of God will fill the earth even as the waters cover the sea according to Isaiah 11.9. And so none of our godly pursuits in this temporal world, are to be forsaken. They're not in vain. We are preparing for the future. We are laying a foundation for the future in all the godly pursuits that God gives us to do at this time. Fourthly, love not the world does not mean you cannot invite your non-Christian neighbor over in order to give him the light of the gospel. Christ did so continuously throughout his ministry. It was not because he enjoyed the company or the fellowship of non-believers over believers that he did so. It was because he had to be in some kind of contact with unbelievers in order to give them the light and the truth. That must be your motive. Not to get cozy with the world but to give light to the world. Well, then what does it mean? Love not the world means you are not to love the wicked for the sake of their wickedness. You are not to embrace, enjoy, or bestow honor upon of Christ for the sake of their enmity against Christ. In 1 John, just note how John uses the word world to refer to the enemies of God. Presently, at least, in that particular context, unregenerate. doesn't mean that they won't be regenerated sometime in the future, but at that particular point, they're viewed as being enemies, as being wicked, as being those who will not follow Christ. Notice in verse Chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 John. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Verse 13 of the same chapter. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Verse, chapter 4, verse 5. They are of the world. That is, these antichrists, these Gnostic false teachers, they are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. Chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And finally, in verse 19, chapter 5, verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So the world are those who hate the Lord. What are the things of the world then? 
Well, the things of the world that you are commanded not to love are all the thoughts, doctrines, philosophies, and desires that proceed from the wicked mind of the worldly man that is in rebellion against God. You find three of those. We'll look at those in just a moment in verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. Three of those desires that come from the world. As you look at this particular command, dear ones, John is actually saying, stop loving the world. It's not actually a prohibition against something that they have not been doing. The way that it's worded in the version I read, love not the world, would give the idea that they had not begun loving the world. But actually, it is in the present tense. The prohibition is in the present tense, which implies stop loving the world the things that are in the world. How are these believers loving the world of God's enemies? Well, I propose to you that they were getting close and cozy with the Gnostic false teachers. They were flirting with and to varying degrees embracing the things of this world, the philosophy of the Gnostic false teachers, the vain philosophies that these teachers promoted. And John rebukes his children in the faith and commands them to stop it immediately. You see, in chapter 4, verse 5, as I mentioned, they are called, those antichrists, those false teachers are called the world. They are of the world. This apparently was the problem. They were getting too chummy with these false teachers. You see, dear ones, there is an enmity between the world and God, according to James 4.4. You befriend the world as you make yourself an enemy of God. There's enmity between the world and God. And we find in Genesis 3.15 that God judicially produced an enmity between the seed of the woman, that is Christ, and all believers in Christ, and the Satan seed, all believers. God judicially imposed enmity between them. This enmity between Christians and non-Christians is simply one of Christians having the light of the knowledge of God and non-Christians being blinded to the true knowledge of God. Now, God imposed that enmity. Thus, you or myself are not to in any way mix or dilute the enmity that exists between a Christian and a non-Christian. There is only one infallible standard for truth in life, and that is the Word of God. The devil's means of diluting the effective testimony of the church has always been to compromise the truth. Not by first denying the truth, but by compromising the truth. Very slowly, very gradually, a little error there, a little error here, not too much, just a little bit, until the truth has been eroded. An example that we read earlier from Second Chronicles chapter 19 that Elder Domes read, where Jehoshaphat allied himself with 
King Ahab because of a marriage relationship that he had entered into relatives of one another. And he went to war with Ahab against Ahab's enemies. And when he returned from that battle, you'll remember the words of the prophet to Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 2, And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. You see, even though we seek to bring the light to the world, there is an enmity between the world that we cannot compromise in the least. John declares that if anyone continues to love the world, that is, if anyone lives in an unrepentant orgy with those who hate Christ, the love of the Father is not in him, regardless of what he professes with his mouth. He cannot love the world and love the Father. He will love one and hate the other. There is no neutrality. As we look at verse 16 of First John chapter 2, we see the origin of these vain thoughts that come, from, that come from the world. The origin is not of God, but rather the origin is from the world. What are these vain thoughts, these desires that come from the wicked of this world that we as Christians can imbibe as well? First of all, the lust of the flesh. Second, the lust of the eyes. And third, the pride of life. The lust of the flesh is simply an appeal to pleasure and what pleases me rather than to what pleases God. You know, the word fun is in. The word duty is out in our society and culture. People want to have fun. They want to please themselves. But you talk about responsibility and duty. Boy, they run as quick as they can from that. And our children, dear ones, mirror us. And the world, when you hear them say, but Dad, it's no fun. Why are you having me do that? It's not fun. Dear ones, this may be a startling revelation to you, but you were not created in order to have fun. God created you to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. And this is one of the important truths that Sabbath-keeping, I believe, teaches us in Isaiah 58, verses 13-14. Sabbath-keeping teaches us that God did not create us to have fun, but to bring Him pleasure. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the honor of the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor Him not doing your own ways, not finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, 
the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The lust of the eyes is the second desire. This is coveting and envying those things you do not have. It may be coveting the wealth of others, the honor or the promotion that's been given to others. The physical appearance of others you may covet or envy. Or you may covet or envy someone else's husband or wife. It is all lust of the eyes. You know, we live, and there's so many applications to this, but I want to make one. We live in a culture that values the body that is perfectly proportioned according to the world's standards. The human body has become a god to this world, much like the Greeks of old. It is worshipped and adored. Dear ones, take heed that you do not become a body worshipper, either of your own body or that of some sleazy model or slut plastered upon some billboard or page in a magazine. Beware. Take heed. Make a covenant with your eyes not to look at those things. Take heed, dear ones, that you do not adopt the philosophy of the world in expecting your husband or your wife to look like some godless body worshiper. Thirdly, the third desire, the pride of life. That's living to hear the applause of men rather than the applause of God. You are, dear ones, to fear God more than you fear any man. The Pharisees performed their works in order to be seen by men and that was, Jesus said, the only reward that they would receive. The desire to be an elder, and this is my application in this case, the desire to be an elder can at times, dear ones, be motivated by the longing to be recognized as someone who is worthwhile Someone who is deserving of respect and the honor of others. Beware that that's not your motivation in seeking any office within the church. Let me tell you, dear ones, no position in the church, no position in the family, no position in the civil government can convey honor and respect in and of itself. It is only a godly man who loves his God, loves the brethren, and loves the truth more than he loves his own life, that receives true honor and respect. The standard is the third point. What is the standard? The standard is those who do the will of the Lord will abide forever. God's revealed will, as found in the Holy Scripture, is the standard by which we are to curb and check worldliness. Doing the will of God. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know that perfect, good, and acceptable will of God. Renewal of the mind. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6-9, through 
we find there the example of two magicians that confronted Moses, Janus and Jambres. They were false prophets. They were false teachers. They were pagans. They withstood Moses and even mimicked some of the plagues. But Paul says their teaching will go so far that it will not be able to progress any further. You see, the world and its lusts are passing away, but he who does the will of God abides forever. It is the truth that is victorious. It is the truth that conquers. It is not error. It is not heresy. It is not the vain philosophies of this world. It is truth. It is the Word and the will of God that endures forever and is the one who obeys and does God's will that abides forever. In conclusion, let me simply make three, very quick, very quickly, three applications of this worldly thinking that we need to work on in the family. Let us never have the worldly thinking that we're not going to force our children or force our faith down the throats of our children and thus determine that we will not have family worship. Let us not say, my child doesn't seem to get anything from family worship. Therefore, we will not have family worship. That is vain and worldly thinking. Let it not be said, I'm not going to force my child to do something that he doesn't want to do because I'll turn him against God. Dear ones, if you carry that out consistently, you would never force him to do anything right. Anything biblical. That's vain, foolish, worldly thinking. Be faithful in family worship. In the church, I'm nauseated at the man-centered preaching, the man-centered praying, the man-centered worship, the man-centered gospel, the man-centered counseling, and the man-centered discipline in the church. Not God-centered. Not Christ-centered. Not thinking God's thoughts after Him. God, help us to always uphold the divine right of the Lord Jesus Christ to rule in His church. And in the civil government, pluralism reigns. The government, it is said, cannot take sides with or show preferential treatment to any religion. That's pluralism. It cannot help, dear ones, but show partiality. It cannot help but have a religion. Every law that the government enacts is a religious law. It just depends whose religion it is. Whether it's secularism or whether it's some other religion. Let us rather see that Jesus Christ is the King of the nations, that He sits upon His throne, that He is the ruler of the kings of the earth, and it is the obligation of magistrates to kiss the Son and to enact the laws of God. Dear ones, you can expect to be called a legalist, a Pharisee, a nitpicker, if you use sanctified biblical thinking 
rather than feeling your way around what feels right, what feels good. Men have become today effeminate feelers rather than masculine thinkers. God raise up godly thinkers who will not love the world nor the vain philosophy of this world. And I close by reading this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is my and God's exhortation to you, beloved, today. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, You have spoken to us clearly from Your Word today that we are not to adopt the worldly thinking of this age. There is to be an enmity. There is to be an antithesis, an opposition, a division a separation between the world and the saints. O oh God, cause Your people in this congregation and throughout the world to see that if they begin to look like the world, the world has no reason at all to want what the church has to offer. O oh God, we pray that the power of the Gospel would be manifest in our lives. We pray, Father, that You would raise up biblical thinkers, those who rule their family according to Your Word, the church according to Your Word, and civil government according to Your Word. We pray all of these things in Your most blessed and holy name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, 
abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.